0: How's it going, everyone? This is Cool for Thought, and I'm Khan. This is part three of our 2016 coverage, and we've got two conservatives on today to talk about how they both view the election and the Republican Party. They're both masters of public policy candidates, so you can expect their insights to be both interesting and brilliant. Charlie was born in L.A. and raised in Buffalo to an American father and a Syrian mother. He's got a degree in foreign affairs and has worked on Capitol Hill and at the FDA. Will studied economics and foreign affairs and spent a summer in India concentrating on international economic development. His parents are both public school teachers after receiving MBAs from Harvard Business School.
1: So essentially, that's where my inferiority
0: complex comes from. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, it's a good place to Yeah, start. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for being on with us, guys. Sure. Thanks for having us. So we did the Democratic episode a few days ago, and the guys that we had on were self-described one of them was a liberal Democrat, and one of them was a moderate Democrat. Could you guys explain on the spectrum of conservatism, liberalism, where you guys fall?
1: Sure. Charlie, you want to go first?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, to, to
2: put it into simpler terms, I think this is a good issue to start on is, you know, when people look especially at the candidates running in 2016, we're not necessarily looking at them as conservatives or liberals, but rather Democrats and Republicans. And I know for myself, and I think Will as well, you know, we make a distinction between republican and conservative and so you know i certainly fall on the right side of the spectrum however being in policy school and working within the government as well as just experiences that i've had traveling the country as well as the world has led me to be certainly more open more susceptible to um more receptive to ideas that many of my colleagues would say oh that's a liberal value and so you know while i am on the right side of the spectrum i am by no means you know building myself a wall, if you will, on my my right, side.
1: Right. Yeah, and I think that's... Uh, I, I feel like there's, there's a role for government, but I'd still like to see government as limited as possible to continue that efficiency, that market efficiency that we've always been talking about in economics classes.
0: Okay. Do you feel like the Republican Party in 2016 represents your guys' views? Absolutely not.
1: Yeah, no, I... I just literally just got out of a lunch where I was talking with one of my friends and he was like, so who's your guy? And I was like, I don't know um, what. And uh, one of our professors that uh, I remember Charlie was there for that conversation was basically like, there is no worse time in American politic history than during the primary season. Like right. that's when all of these very radical views are kind of put on display for a lot of people. I know uh, the Democrats have been putting on a similar kind of display with Bernie Sanders. Uh, um, that people in the middle are kind of like, well, that's not exactly how I'm feeling about things. So, um, no, I I don't feel like the Republicans at this point really anybody identify. I can identify with all of their views, but kind of need to make the best of that once the uh, nominations come out. Right.
2: Yeah, and you know I, I think. A lot of that is, you know, at least for my view and from Will's view as well, being policy students, we're people that really like to talk action. Yeah, absolutely. You know, stump speeches don't exactly impress us. Um, We want to hear concrete plans of how we're going to move forward, or even if it's not a concrete plan, we just want to hear a course of action that they have laid out and how they think that they can attain it. But all we're getting right now in the age of, you know, the Twitter sphere where, Every campaign needs to be summed up in 140 characters or less. You can't exactly do that. And so, you know, what they usually just revert back to, what's safe for political candidates, is just the stump speech. Or, you know, certainly, because I've been watching a lot of the Republican side and how they've been doing things, um, that stump speech can also be construed as like fear mongering in a way. And so right. that's what I've been seeing a lot of. And I, you know, one, I don't believe the country is in a dire, uh, you know, dire straits as they are portraying it to be and I certainly think that we have a lot of challenges in the future however I think that we are well equipped better equipped than we ever have been to face those challenges
1: right. yeah the the thing that sticks out for me with the Republicans is the emotion that you're getting from a lot of people it's uh I don't I don't know when we switched from you know after nine eleven. I remember the conversation was we are Americans like we will endure because that is our mentality, we have um we have rights, we have freedoms that nobody else in the world has. I don't know when it became a okay, there are enemies out there, and we need to destroy them, and they are threatening our very foundation of what we believe in it it it's not like i I really honestly believe that America is more um more resilient than a couple radicals threatening the the rest of our lives and i i i hear about you know um we need to build a wall on the the mexican border and things like that and i'm like when did when did that become what we were worried about like i'm i'm i thought we were worried about jobs and and you know advancing the country not this one like thing that's now become such a a pivotal factor for a lot of people in the
0: campaigns so do you feel like and in- Charles, you mentioned uh, fear mongering. Do you feel like this emotion is a response purely from the fear mongering from candidates on whatever side?
2: I know. I think that's interesting. Um, I think the fear mongering speaks to a deeper level of uh, what I've come to see over the past few years as as, um, as racism, more or less, um, where you know we talk about you know. Trump wants to ban Muslims. Um, He wants to build a wall against Mexicans, you know, and and when you talk about welfare, the Republican Party talks about welfare. A lot of the time they're talking about, you know, black people, more or less inner city folk. And so, you know, I think that the fear mongering is almost like a camouflaged way for them to address these race issues that a lot of people that are voting for Republicans don't necessarily know how to talk about, but they want to talk about they want to. You know, go back to the days of old and stuff like that, where, you know, it was these people and their families were on top of the societal ladder. And so they say that, oh, you know, like Muslims are going to, you know, come to our country from Syria and they're going to, you know, be bombing our malls and things like that. When in reality, they just, you know, don't understand and therefore don't like um, Muslims. And so this is a great way for them to sort of put that out there without straight up blatantly being like, I'm
0: racist yeah and you mentioned you mentioned welfare and you know i'm thinking about food stamps and things <laughs> like that um, there's a stat from 2013 from the us department of agriculture that says that 40% of snap recipients are white oh yeah so and i mean to you guys policy students that's probably not surprising right? oh
1: no i mean the the amount of welfare programs that actually benefit the middle class over you know lower class or even you know and and everyone we have a disproportionate amount of people identifying as the middle class. Um, for example, 529 plans. I've been a direct par, uh, participant you, can in... Can you explain what that is? Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, so Virginia has uh, what's called a... Uh, shoot, Form 529 or Tax 529. I don't know where the 529 comes from. But I just know <laughs> that that's what I call it. But, um, you know, that's that's an example of a welfare program that's benefiting classes besides lower classes, and everyone's got this, like welfare is bad mentality. And it's not that welfare is bad, it's just welfare can cause inefficient results by not motivating people to work hard or do these other things. But you can see the opposite effect with taxes and things like that as well.
2: And, you know, sort of speaking on to the other end of that, um, my father was born and raised in Buffalo, New York. And, you know, he comes from an all white family. Uh, he had seven siblings, I believe. and. He, he was his family was recipient of almost every form of welfare available. I mean, they were the quintessential white poverty family. Um, you know, they had to go and work on farms. All eight children had to go work on farms during the day to earn enough money to bring food back to the uh, table every night. And so, but it's interesting because, you know, my father through a series of events and, you know, luck and skill and grit, he was able to break that sort of cycle of poverty unlike his other family members. And he was able to go to college in Texas on a government scholarship um, and then, you know, got a job as an architect. He's doing very well now, but he still, you know, he sort of forgot that everything that he did, you know, what put, what truly put the food on the table, what allowed him to go to, you know, high school, what allowed him to go to college and things like that were all more or less welfare programs. Um, But he's forgotten that. And so, you know, he's very anti-welfare, like a lot of people are. They're like, you know, I did this by myself. And I think that's one of the things that... You know, we as a society and certainly a lot of people in the Republican Party need to start realizing is that almost nothing in this day and age is done by ourselves. Um,
1: Infrastructure, for example. Exactly. You know,
2: any major business, you know, utilizes roads, utilizes telecommunication services. All these things were built by the government. Um, And the people that, you know, learn skills, they do so more often than not at publicly funded universities, government institutions more or less things like that they all almost everyone went to a public high school um and so i think that we need to start shedding the idea that welfare is a bad thing and what we need to look at is just more or less the return on it you know maybe there there's i don't really think there's any bad welfare program i just think that there are less good ones and if we can sort of target the less good ones we can make like we'll set a more efficient society yeah
1: the thing that comes down to me for me is inefficiency you know there there are examples where um and you know I'm not going to sit here and deny that there could potentially be welfare queens um I went to a school where um you know in my high school, kids had moms who you know did not spend their welfare checks on them, which you know unfortunately there's inefficiencies in these kinds of a system. How can we get rid of those efficiencies though in a productive the way right exactly and and figure out ways to produce policies that um, are almost self self uh regulating so you don't have to spend so much money on regulation um you don't have to spend so many so much on these new agencies because every time an agency gets popped up, it's an extra however much money being paid by taxpayers to make sure these programs work efficient efficiently but if we if we make smart policies that can do that by themselves and use market uh solutions, then I see. More potential for the future, um, and less less opportunity
0: for people to to abuse those systems. You said you mentioned spending a lot of money on regulations. Can you sure. unpack that a little bit?
1: Sure. So um, what I kind of mean by that is uh, the uh, I talked a little bit about just resiliency within the government. So uh, once you establish an agency, it's very difficult to get rid of that agency. Um, you know, there's been talk about getting rid of the IRS. But if you get rid of the IRS, what's going to take the place of the IRS? Now, I actually think rebranding the IRS is a good idea. But that's that's my own take on it. Um, break it down, call it something else, and then people won't be so mad when they're losing that money. Um, but no, the the there are examples where uh thing that comes to the top of my head is um. Actually, nothing comes to the top of my head, but (laughs) let's say like uh, the EPA, EPA suddenly decides that they really want to have a water cleanliness agency, and then that water cleanliness agency decides, okay, we need somebody that specializes, we need a branch that specializes in iron in water supplies, and then that becomes, oh, there's a factor, factories are a part of this, so then, you know, it's, it's this huge mammoth structure that gets developed, What if we did something where the EPA, instead of having to continuously find specializations down the road, what if we were to find a way to just efficiently do that from the top um, and work with businesses, work with corporations, work with people in a way that allows them to realize the potential that they can have and the the potential profit that they can have by just fulfilling um, the optimum for the social Benefit, right, or something like that, and I you you can do that by um, passing on the social well the social benefit that's created through these through these regulations onto the the corporations, so it becomes in their best interest to lower iron levels or something like and, that. And you know a
2: great example of that was was it the seventies or the eighties when um they started labeling tuna cans that they were harvesting they were harvesting these tuna in the Pacific. And the government said, okay, you know, like it would be, you need to label if this, uh, you know, tuna was fished out of the ocean with or without harming dolphins. And so they started putting that on cans. And as soon as that started happening, all those companies that weren't able to put, you know, fish without harming dolphins, they were out of business within five years and the rest of them just took off. And so there was no new tax. There was no new structure put in place that would sort of, you know, like, overwatch them continuously It was more or less just like here let's trust the the public to make the proper decision and they did that and we saw I think it was over a 90% reduction in dolphin deaths from fishing in the Pacific Ocean in you know the Japan to China region um, during that time period and you know it's, it's just a classic textbook example that we learn. you know and this speaks to a larger theme of when government intervenes um, a lot of time it's changing now because we live you know sort of at dawn of an age where information is much more available not only to us but also to the government so it's able to make better informed decisions but in the past um you know almost all the precedent when the government intervenes it kind of has to come in with one or two blanket policies that you know kind of hit the middle of the road but doesn't really take into account some examples where you know you're on one side or the other at the at the extremes which might be the most dangerous cases of what can happen to the environment, to the economy when you don't intervene. But because you don't have enough information, the government has to sort of just throw down a big blanket policy. And that's not always the most efficient. So like Will was talking about with that tax, we like it where, you know, there's a marketplace available for, you know, private companies or even just private citizens to exchange government regulated goods. And internalize
1: internalize exactly. the cost that they are uh, distributing on
0: society exactly do you feel like candidates in 2016 struggled to express that or do they just think differently on economics than you guys i don't think we've gotten to a chance we really, yeah, can talk yeah. about that yet. you know a
2: couple of things i think i think it's um you know my personal view on it is that the president doesn't sit in his office and go hmm I want the economy to do this today and right. just signs a letter and all of a sudden the economy changes. You know, there are so many moving parts in this. The president's primary job is to be the agenda setter um, for the country as a whole, as well for his executive agencies. And so, you know, I think that the reason that we don't hear a lot of these conversations is because, quite frankly, a lot of people either aren't interested or just don't have the time or energy to fully understand what they're saying. And so when we hear a lot of these Debates and things like that for 2016 candidates, they just choose not to even touch on that because you know, when you only have during a debate 30 seconds to respond to a question, like you're not going to be able to set up a scenario and explain how you know the marginal differences here and there and things like that, and internalized costs. So, what you just fall back on is you know, like the classic Donald Trump, I'm just gonna be better, you know, I'm gonna make. I'm gonna make the economy stronger than it ever has. Keep it simple. Exactly, but you know, for us, it's too simple because anyone can say that. Right. You know, I could stand on a soapbox and say I'm gonna be the best president mm-hmm. because, you know, because I'm Charlie, and people with the name Charlie are just fantastic people. So that's why I don't necessarily um, see the conversation turning anytime soon to these sort of issues.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I remember the last uh, last presidential campaign. Uh, the best campaign or the best debates, from my perspective, were when President Obama and um, Governor Romney were talking um, at a table and they were, you know, outlining their plans in great depth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really enjoyed that. I don't know if primary season is the time for that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's difficult. The only what I'm looking for in a candidate, though, is somebody who's thoughtful. Somebody who, you know. I don't agree I'm not and I'm not I'm not I'm just not going to agree with a candidate on every perspective there's just no chance it's going to happen. Right. What I would like to see though is somebody that shares my values and also has the analytical prowess and uh staff to put that into a real agenda. Um and on top of that someone that's also I like
2: to personally see someone that is proven they can do that yeah Um, that's why i think governors make great candidates right because or you know people that are in high levels of executive agencies because they know what it's like to you know unlike a congressman or a senator who yes runs a district and has been on committees they've never actually like looked from the top down through a power structure head of an executive exactly exactly i think that's massively important because then they realize they have the unique perspective that's necessary and even though the governor is just of a small state when they get to the national level and if they make it to the White House, they have the staff to, you know that would
1: sort of allow them to better facilitate the running of fifty states rather than one. just looking at the candidates and how polarized um, Congress has now become and politics has definitely become uh there's a lot of emotion, and the base for these candidates is. I'm looking kind of at Bernie Sanders, who's pulled a lot of the liberal vote away from Hillary Clinton. Um, I'm also looking at Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, who are now the front runners and are pulling those conservatives that are, you know, all the way to the right. Um, Now, that being said, from what I understand about voter theory, they're going to have to move to the center. Like, there's no chance that they're going to win the popular vote, much less, well, Hopefully, if you win the popular vote, you'll win the Electoral College, but we've seen that different in the past um, in our lifetimes. Um, but yes, yeah, they, they've got to they've get that median voter, so right. they've, they've got to move back towards the middle, middle in some way. Um, the question is, can they continue to um, hold on to those original voters that might be on the more extreme ends? And also capture those middle middle voters as well. And I'm not sure if that's going to be the case this, this time. I'm, I'm wondering if we now have a situation where inequality has developed a population in which we have people on two polar ends of each other. And then, you know, some people with the moderate view in the middle that are just being left out. Um, and will not get to really see a lot of those... Uh, idiosyncrasies that you'd like to see from a a, um, developed candidate, Um, and then it's going to become a vote against a candidate rather than a vote for a candidate, which, you know, politics. Right.
0: Um, Mm -hmm. What issues do you think the presumptive, or the the future nominee, what issues do you think they would come center on in the general election? I think that you're going to have to come center on
2: um, immigration. I think that's Uh, well maybe you don't have to come center on it but but you certainly need to move away from where the conversation is right now you can't be talking about building a wall you can't be talking about just denying um hundreds of thousands of refugees you know not just immigrants but refugees from war zones and i'm not just talking about syria i'm also talking about uh quasi war zones in guatemala in nicaragua things like that um that's certainly one that people need to just realize. Th- this is unsustainable. The conversation we're having now—it's damaging our worldview. Um, it's also damaging how the world views us. Um, it's affecting our soft power. Exactly. It's massively affecting soft power. Could you explain what soft power
1: is? Sure. So soft power is um, the United States through their, uh, through our economic ability and um, culture, military really and culture, um, and our ideals. Honestly, mm-hmm. um, we are able to uh, influence events around the world not through actual power but by kind of taking the moral high ground in a lot of situations um, and being the moral high ground Um, and this conversation where you can argue and the international community has argued that we are no longer in the moral right has affected uh, people's views uh, in a negative way to diminish that soft power
0: it's hard for me to imagine that Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, or even Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side, could come center and still hold their voters. Here's what I think might happen. Uh
1: Trump and Cruz are pander panders. Is that the whatever? <laughs> pandering, sure, they're pandering. Um I mean, Ted Cruz, you look at his his history, the guy went to I think he went to Princeton, Princeton. And then he went to Yale Law. Was it Yale Law or Harvard Law? I think it was Harvard Law. I think it was Harvard Law. And the he would only... This is a great story. He only studied with students who came from Princeton, Yale, or Harvard. If you didn't come from one of those top three Ivies, he wouldn't study with you because you you were below him. He is some guy who is extremely ambitious. And more power to him and i think that that ambition will definitely morph as uh if he wins the nomination uh he needs to capture that middle voter um and he will absolutely change his views and his rhetoric on a lot of things um right now i i kind of feel like he is uh definitely trying to uh emanate uh president um reagan and he's doing a good job of that honestly but um Donald Trump.
2: I mean, I, I got some thoughts on Donald yeah, Trump. I don't, I don't really someone, know. He's someone that I've certainly, I've been paying more attention to him than any other candidate in the selection because as, I'm fascinated. As has,
0: as has the, the country, the, the right? Yeah, I mean, people, it's yeah. it's
2: it's a train wreck, and I'm not going to look away. I want to keep watching because <laughs> it's it's disheartening, but it's truly amazing what's happening. Um, you know, talking about moving back to the middle of the path, I don't see Don. Donald Trump really perplexes me because I don't believe that he believes most of what he's saying. Um just looking at his past record, you know that he actually like Stephen Colbert held a Donald Trump versus Donald Trump debate the yes. other night, you know, yeah. and and if that doesn't tell you something about like where he truly lies, I don't know what will. But his voters are so entrenched on, you know, the the far right of American politics that I do not think that he will be able to um, move center. I don't think they will let him. I mean, he, he will wither away to nothing because they're his lifeblood right now. They're the most energetic of conservative voters. You know, they're they're the Tea Party. Not even the Tea Party. I'm not even... I guess they are the Tea Party. There, there are a lot of other things as well. But they're the most energetic. You know, they're the ones that are getting the word out. They're the ones that are going to vote, uh, most importantly. But... In the primaries, at least. In the primaries, at least. Um, and they certainly will when... If he... Wins the election and you know heads over to uh, the main event for for the White House bid, um, but to them, to his support base, any sort of e- even sneezing in the direction of you know the liberal cause or Democrats in general is tantamount to just treason. Like you know that's that's capital punishment right there. And so I mean they are they are not open in the least to. Even hearing what the other side has to say, and so it's a fundamentally unworkable political situation for Donald Trump in the future, I
1: believe. Especially in the American situ- American right. political system, where you need to be able to come. You need the median voter, and
2: yeah. he does, He's and if he wants to get the median voter, he's going to lose his entire foundation.
1: I thought I thought when he was coming out and he had sixteen uh, percent, I was like, "That's sixteen percent. That's all the way on the right. There's no way that he's going to get anything above that." And then he climbed to twenty-three percent. I was like. Okay, 23%, that's it. That's all he's got. Now he's at, what, 35 and it's just like...
2: Fear-mongering,
0: fear-mongering is a hell of a drug. Yeah, okay. dude, apparently. It really is. Why do you guys think the relationship between Donald Trump and the Clintons hasn't seemed to hurt either of their campaigns? I think, well,
2: Clinton because... The platform she's running on, you know, I don't know much about it. Um, a couple things. One, she has bigger issues that the media is paying attention to right now, uh, like primarily what? her email scandal. Yeah. That's, I mean, if you run a news source, you've talked about that at least 36 times in the past 10 hours. Um, so I think that that's taking up most of the media attention. Um, and then Donald Trump has just eclipsed whatever sort of scandal that is, that he's running for Republican nomination and was you know, more or less in bed with the Clintons. Um previously, I mean he, his campaign is just so out there now. the rhetoric he 's spewing is so flammable that just like hillary um this that sort of thing just pales in comparison to the story that it makes up for either one of them.
1: The other thing is that uh listening to focus groups and just qualitative uh segments that i 've talked to peop that have heard from people who support Donald Trump is uh they like him because he just he just says quote-unquote, like, he says what's on his mind. He says that he speaks the truth, like, whatever you want to say about it. Um, and people don't, like, Clinton came up in a debate, the first debate, and uh, he was like, I told her to be at my wedding, and she was there. It was his third wedding, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> Christian values, whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he, he has never shied away from the limelight. He has never worried about what his past has done. He's a f- locomotive that is going full speed ahead and is going to ram anything that's in his way right down, um, which has been an effective strategy so far. But after the primary season, I don't know if that's, that's something that you can continue yeah, and, to do. Yeah, and he draws a lot of attention from voters um,
2: because they don't identify him as a politician. You know, no matter what the reality may be, they see him as well as Bernie Sanders, sort of like you know, outside the established fringe. Right, they're 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 fighting the man, whoever the man may be. You know, whatever specter that's coming from the RNC or the DNC. Um, You know, they see them as sort of the antithesis to you know, on the Republican side, like the Jeb Bush, the tired, older white man. You know, even though Donald Trump is still the same thing, like, they they recognize him as, you know, just being someone that is having none of the system, and especially because when he first came out, before he gathered a lot of steam, he's like, I'm funding this entire campaign myself. Um, He's not anymore, but... He was doing that for a while uh, at the very beginning, and people loved that because they thought this is someone
0: that's above the system. So Charlie, you mentioned that you think governors make better candidates for president because they've been at the top of an executive branch. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you say then to the people who say, well, even though Trump doesn't have political experience, he is the head of you know, a billion-dollar company. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's been extremely successful. Um, why doesn't that translate then? Because in, in my view, running a business um,
2: and a government are fundamentally different. Um, and I think everyone knows this. That's Certainly everyone that's listening to this knows this. But I think it's, you know, lot, I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, Donald Trump, he controls a lot of people and he has to answer to investors, much like politicians have to answer to voters. But I think it's different because investors, when they invest in Trump industries or whatever it is, they're concerned with one thing, and that's making more money, leaving the situation with more money than they entered it. And they don't particularly care how they go, how that happens. So that gives Donald Trump a lot more freedom to execute his policies and to take a much stronger stance
1: um, within can, his company. You can do morally questionable things.
0: Exactly. So Whereas, you see, that's why you see his ties made in China.
1: Yeah.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And it's it's you know, and on top of that, you know, when someone like Jeb Bush, for example, you know, was the governor of Florida. He, you know, yes, he has to answer the voters and, you know, that's it. But the thing is about voters is that they're not just concerned about one thing. They're concerned about a million things. And so having to work within politics, it's a huge balancing act. And it takes a lot more skill. Like, you need to have your dancing shoes on to be able to navigate the political landscape effectively. Not just efficiently, but also effectively. And Donald Trump to me right now is the bull in the china shop. He doesn't even own dancing shoes.
1: But I would, I mean, looking at what... Uh, president Obama was able to do from a leadership perspective I mean regardless I think of how you view some of his politics I think he's done a good job leading his administration at least um, oh, yeah. I'd be interested to see how the counterfactual if President or er, President if Governor Romney was uh, elected President being the CEO of or CEO or President or whatever, he, whatever he was of Bain uh, and then moving into the Governor's role he had the leadership resume. Right. Like, he had it. Um, smart guy. Like, super, super smart guy. Rest but, yeah. do <laughs> rip. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I, I think that that would be super interesting. And uh, he had all the qualifications, but it just didn't, didn't pan out for him. I mean, we've always, like, since the beginning of this campaign cycle, it's been, uh, when's Marco going to start moving yeah. forward, when is when are these moderate candidates going to get the limelight? Uh, and I remember uh, in 2012, and uh, every, it, it was, who who can we elect besides Mitt Romney? Like, nobody wanted to elect Romney, ended up, like, that was the prime, like, he was the, the most electable, ended up uh, getting the nomination. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if that holds true. Because people have just been waiting for, for Marco to start peaking and, and getting into the, the, um, the candidates or getting higher in the polls. Um, but I'm not sure if that's going to happen this year. Um, so you, you see know. Marco
0: Rubio as a moderate Republican. <laughs> Ain't that something? Are there any, any candidates outside those who you would say are qualified to run for president? Joe Biden. Joe Biden <laughs> as, I, as a Republican. No, not as a
1: Republican. I just wish that he would have run.
2: But, um, yeah, from the Republican side. God. I mean,
1: so, I think that Lindsey Graham and Rand Paul both have the experience, and I, I don't agree with them on a lot of their, their topics. Uh, John McCain, God, I wish that guy would come back. Um, you know, there, there are a couple of people that they've got the, the resumes, they've got the experience that I think would make them a qualified candidate, they just, they haven't been able to kind of break through in any significant way. And I just like Rand Paul because he'll he will go on like, he's a very opinionated person and those opinions have some kind of foundation. They are a basis of which he's got like, you know, he's got an ideal, he's got ideals and he sticks to them. So I like that about him, um, but I don't agree with a lot of the stuff that he says. Um, yeah, and uh, you know, someone that I don't,
2: I'm looking forward to 2020 and 2024 because I'm hoping someone Kanye? that I've,
1: what? Kanye? Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> someone that I've respected for a long time and I hope eventually makes a White House bid outside of Kanye West is Paul Ryan. Um, he's someone that I I respect immensely um, because he, he is someone that is willing, he's shown that he's willing to, reach across the aisle, and that he doesn't just talk merely in rhetoric and chest-thumping, but he'll bring numbers to back up his argument on a lot of things, or at least he'll try to make an argument, not just saying, like, this is my moral belief, even though a lot of decisions need to be made based on that, but also that he's shown that he's willing to bring a budget to the table year after year that he's worked on.
0: Can you guys expand on the idea that a big loss in 2016 or 2020? would change the Republican Party. I think Charlie, you kind of were, uh, were leading to that a little bit.
2: Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, were we, so I categorize big loss in two ways. One, it's either, you know, we get crushed and either Sanders or Clinton come, rises to the presidency or potentially Trump wins. And, you know, if he does actually follow through with the policies he's proposed, we see a lot of things go very wrong um, for the United States over the next four years. Either way, if things go poorly, you know people are gonna need to start realizing that if we want our agenda to move through, we need to get behind one person. And like Will said, we, don't, we will not agree with someone on every single issue. That's just almost impossible to do these days. What you need to do is either find a few issues that are really important to you, or just find someone that has the majority of your issues that they support, and they you can get behind them, and you can you know present yourself with a united front, much like the Democrats did in two thousand eight and two thousand twelve with Barack Obama. I mean, it was it was you could not distinguish you know one Democratic faction from another during those two presidential elections because they were so, or at least in two thousand eight after the primary, um, they were so solidly behind their candidate that you know it was it was an unstoppable machine and. Even though Donald Trump is leading the polls and he seems like a juggernaut right now, like just the fact that there are five other guys that are even on a debate stage with him at this point is you know, enough to show you that there are still major splinters and
1: it's not going to pay off for the party. With policy, there are always winners and losers. You cannot produce a perfect policy. But how do we produce a policy that... That may have losers in one sense but then they're winners in another sense and I feel like some people have felt like they've been the losers repeatedly over the last eight years and that's why I felt like a Republican should be nominated and should be elected but then my worry is we have people like Trump who as Charlie said I think if elected will cause problems uh, both domestically and internationally for the United States but then also on top of that like if it ends up being that Trump is too polarizing, then you get uh, Clinton or Sanders in another four years of built-up anger that's going to result in 2020. So like, how, how, how much can the leadership in the Republican Party get these kinds of emotions under control? And recently we haven't seen a very effective, um,
0: effective uh, effort from them. Um, president Obama said recently in an interview that being the president is kind of like football. Um, you run the ball, you gain two yards, sometimes you lose a couple yards, sometimes you have to know when to punt. Do you see Donald Trump or Ted Cruz being able to make that realization? I I do, um,
2: well to an extent. Um, I, I think Donald Trump is a lot smarter than he's portraying himself and you know, like I said earlier I don't believe that he truly believes all of what he's saying and so and being you know a businessman of his stature like you have to have some savvy in how you interact with people and some sort of social gauge where you sort of understand i pushed my limit here um, and i think that he realized that he can't just sort of like steamroll his way through washington dc um, so i think that he will ted cruz i think Realizes that as well, maybe not to the same extent, just because he doesn't have the experience that Donald Trump has. Um, is this only a second term uh, in the Senate, or is he?
1: Yeah, he's he's 20. recent.
2: Yeah, he. I mean, he's new. You know, and so he hasn't been around as long, and he's never held like a a, a big time executive position. And so, um, you know, I think that he would have more growing pains in that sense, just because he would not be as educated or experienced in President understanding where President Obama, rather, though. Yeah, you know. Right, he president. had two, two terms as a senator. Yeah, and, and he had a lot, you know, and again, these guys will all have a great teams of people surrounding them, you know, that to help them make decisions. These guys aren't just waking up in the morning and grabbing their coffee and being like, I'm going to go face
0: Congress, you know? So Ted Cruz has actually only been in the Senate since 2013. Okay. So yeah. do you think that's a valid criticism of him, then, since Obama was criticized for being only a two-term senator?
2: You know, and I... I I can't say anymore because, you know, someone like Barack Obama has grown a lot on the job. And, you know, I really like especially what he's done in his second term. And you know, I think that he's really come into his own. And that's also because he doesn't have to worry about getting reelected. Um, and so, you know, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a valid criticism uh, or, or not as valid a one as I would make. Um, you know, but it, one thing I would say to criticize Ted Cruz is if they're going to harp on Obama so much for his... Um, Uh, you know, where he was born and the whole birther controversy, then I think that you should be allowed to look at Ted Cruz's and address that appropriately as well. I don't think that, you know, I don't think it will be, uh, at least we certainly won't be hearing Fox News call for uh, Cruz to support, to produce his birth certificate and stuff like that. Um, But no,
1: back to your question. I really don't think that that's a, a very valid criticism right now, at least just something in terms of like can they figure this out on the job you know i think that the us government is a situation has has the uh the pro- the protection and the resiliency and i've said resiliency multiple times already but the resiliency to take somebody who is not a hundred percent the first day and be fine over four years. I don't see the end of the country coming anytime soon. I just don't. I think that America means more than that. And I think that people that have this extreme, like kind of idea about, Oh, if we like this person, everything's going to come tumbling down. I think everyone just needs to kind of, and the media is not helping with this, but needs to just take a chill pill a little bit. Just, Think a little bit more logically. Think a little bit more of the, the, how I feel, what are my ideals, who is going to help with that. Rather than, oh my god, we need to like, get back and get these redemption, this redemption, this election or something like
0: that. In 2001 or 2002, after the 9-11 attacks, President Bush came out and gave a very passionate speech Um, articulating the difference between fighting terrorists and, you know, uh, just in general understanding who the enemy is. And, you know, he clearly stated something along the lines of Islam is not our enemy. I say this not to ask a question regarding Islam per se, but from that rhetoric to now, do you think that that's indicative of a greater ideological shift
2: I think that people are now yes um primarily because people when when September 11th happened that was the first time many the majority of Americans had ever heard of radical islam you know there had been attacks on embassies in uh
0: yeah, in eastern that, africa that yeah
2: eastern africa and um you know we had been embroiled in a quasi-war of sorts or conflict of sorts in Lebanon, things like that, where Americans were killed in both instances. And there was
0: also world trade in the 90s.
2: Yes, and world trade in the 90s, right. But this was the first time that we had seen, like, a truly destructive attack on American soil, you know, that that brought down a symbol of America um, from radical Mm -hmm. Islam. And so, you know, it was still fresh on our minds. And so, you know, President Bush comes out and said, you know, we must know our enemy, It's it's not Islam, it's the terrorists, things like that. But now, after what is it, fifteen years of this going on, um, or fourteen years of this going on, where it's in the news every single night, and, and you know, every time you hear of a terrorist attack, it's always from a radical Islamic group, and so I think that now people become used to it, and that they're now it's synonymous terrorist or really just bad guy for a lot of people is radical Islam. And then some people take it a step farther and don't even look at the radical part and just say, it's just Islam. And so, you know, I think that there is, there has been a shift in our country where people are now far more afraid of, you know, we've always been afraid of what we don't understand. And we certainly don't understand, um, you know, someone from Iowa doesn't understand the culture and the settings and, you know, just everyday life in a place like Libya. And so they're afraid of it because they don't understand it. And I've seen that on every level. Um, you know, within the US. And, you know, my mother being from Syria, she's experienced it as well, you know, people interact with her differently. And she's noticed that as time has gone on, people have interacted with her differently. Because, you know, certainly after the first two years after the attack, that's when it was like at a high, because people were just becoming aware of it. September 11th was still fresh in their minds. Um, and, you know, it, it was tough for her to sort of navigate as she was searching for a job at that time. Uh, the landscape it's become better now as people have started to realize or at least people within our social circle have started to realize yeah there is a difference here um but yes to your question i definitely think that there has been a shift in uh just the national conversation on islam and certainly radical islam
0: in general all right guys so let's say the leaders of the democratic party and the republican party right now get the nomination let's say it's hillary (laughs) versus trump who wins oh
2: i like Election by combat, please. That would be. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Hillary I, it, had, it had to be Hillary. Yeah, um, just by by a long shot, with the current rhetoric and how th- you know, if like if tomorrow we were voting for president of the United States and it was Trump and Hillary, Hillary wins by a mile.
1: And Hillary's been Hillary's been pushing her, her candidacy as an extension of President Obama. Right. Um, and the. Lutherans love that. Yeah, yeah. And President Obama's job. the his job approval rating is 46% right now. Yeah. Pretty sure when President Bush was leaving office in 2008 his approval was like 30% or like 20 circumstances, but yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's a lot easier to to say I'm extending this further. Oh yeah. rather than we need a new change. Yeah, we no. need a, we need a new new way of no combat change, change right now, right? No. No, no. People want uh, an extension of what's going on. Yeah. So I think I think Hillary, if she would, and she would, um, produce that message, it would go a long
0: way. I want to thank Charlie and Will again for sharing their ideas. Next up in our general election series is how some young women feel about the Democratic Party and the possibility of a female president. Do you agree with Charlie and Will? Let us know by tweeting at u h r e e b and make sure you subscribe to the feed on iTunes. Thanks again for listening, everyone. This is the Cool for Thought Podcast, and I'm Areeb Khan. Stay hungry.